And what just came into my mind, actually, um, is a story about a time that Joseph and I were teaching a retreat in Hawaii. Did he talk to you about the tidal wave? (laughs) It just popped up in my mind. (laughs) What happened in that retreat (laughs) was um, we were teaching on the big island of Hawaii in a facility that was very near to the ocean. And I was leading the sitting after lunch one day when I heard in the office below us the phone ringing and ringing and ringing. And somehow there were no staff people around to answer it. So because it kept ringing, I began to get the feeling, well, there's something really wrong. And I ended the sitting and went down to the office and sat there waiting for the phone to ring again. Sure enough, it did. When I picked it up, this woman on the other end said to me, well, this is the Civil Defense Department of the island of Hawaii, and we want to tell you that the largest tidal wave in history is expected within an hour, and you need to evacuate immediately. So I said to her, well... We have 60 people here at a retreat. We have two vehicles. Every road we need to take goes right by the ocean. I don't think we can get out. And she said, I'll call you back. (laughs) So I hung up the phone and I went in search of Joseph, who was leading a group interview right at that time. So I went into the back of his room and I waited for a few minutes as he was you know, just talking to people about their experience. And what I remember was that there was somebody speaking to him in a tone of very great despair and anguish and anger about his knee pain. And I remember standing there in the back of the room thinking, boy, if you think you have problems. <laughs> with your knee pain, wait until you find out what's happening to us, you know. Then I told Joseph, I took him aside and I told him, I went back to the phone and I waited. And the woman called back and said, well, it's clearly too late for you to evacuate. And um, the hillside behind us was covered with this very thick, brambly, cutting kind of plant. And so we couldn't go up the hillside either. She said, why don't you go up to the highest point in your buildings and just wait? So we did. We rang the bell and we gathered everybody together and we told them what was happening and we said, we need to go up to the second story, which was as high as it got, and (laughs) wait. (laughs) So we did. We, We went up there and we began to meditate and it was a very, very powerful meditation. <laughs> and I often actually thought of that, that poor person with his knee pain and wondered how he was doing with all of this. And we sat and we sat and we sat and actually nothing at all happened. Not even like a little wave, nothing. But it was a great lesson in perspective. I mean, it was really an amazing, amazing thing.
And for many people, that sitting was the essence of a sitting. I mean, that is, is really the immediacy and the acuteness and the presence that is actually called for from us. I can remember when I was first in India, one of the very early instructions I was ever given by Manindra was quite simple. He said, be with each breath as though it were your first breath and as though it were your last breath. That's it. And then he went on to elaborate a little bit and he said, be with each sound, each taste, each touch sensation. And he went on through the sense doors. Be with it as though it were your very first and as though it were your very last. Because in fact, we don't know. And if we are with an experience as though it were for the very first time, we bring all of that intensity and freshness and vulnerability and newness into our awareness. We're simply there. We're not comparing it to the past. We're not blaming ourselves that it isn't something better. And if we're with that experience as though it were for the very last time, we're not postponing our mindfulness. We're not waiting for something better to come along in order to come awake or come alive to that experience. It's really right here and now in that tremendous power and clarity of attention that we find the Dharma, we find mindfulness, and we find the practice. I've talked to some of you in interviews about what I sometimes call the depth fallacy of meditation. And even though I and many other people in speaking about practice will often talk about depth, there came in my own practice a very, very great turning point when one day I realized that there was no such thing as depth. Previous to that moment, my practice was often a great struggle. I would be experiencing something, say knee pain, which I experienced quite a lot, and I somehow felt that experiencing it as pain was not good enough. I had to experience it as these bubbling, dancing, vibrating particles or else I wasn't deep enough, I wasn't subtle enough. And actually, in that whole period of my practice, what I was practicing was dissatisfaction, because I actually couldn't transform the pain into dancing, bubbling, vibrating little particles. That wasn't what I was experiencing. I was experiencing throbbing and aching and burning and twisting and some very crude gross sensations. When I realized, when I had my great turning point, I realized that what is called depth, the subjective experience that we do have as depth, is actually the result of a continuity of mindfulness. It's having a fair number of moments strung together in a row of being mindful 
even if the object of the mindfulness is incredibly crude and gross and ordinary and standard and, you know, nothing special. When I realized that, my whole practice opened up because that is something actually we can do. We can't experience something we're not experiencing. Like if we're experiencing gross knee pain, there's really no effort that's going to make it into something else. But we can, in fact, be more mindful, more moments in a row. That is quite within our capacity to come back sooner, to let go faster. When we realize we've been distracted, to begin again, rather than taking a journey through self-judgment or analysis. All of that are things that actually we can do, very readily do. And that, in fact, is the practice. It's a very forgiving practice in that way, because it doesn't matter how much you get distracted. It doesn't matter how many times you get lost. It doesn't matter what wild diversions the mind makes, what terrain you cover in those distractions. What's important is that ability to reconnect, to begin again, to start over, to let go and come back to the present moment, whatever object that might be, pleasant or painful or neutral, wonderful or ordinary, whatever it is. That's the very nature of, of being mindful. <clears throat> it's to realize that in the moment that we recognize we've been distracted, we already have begun again to be aware. And we can cherish that, we can nurture that, rather than lose sight of that and get lost in judgment or manipulation or trying to figure out what to do about what's happened. Mindfulness really becomes a question of recollection. It's a question of remembering. We practice so that we can remember more clearly, more often, and in a wider and wider variety of circumstances. Of course, in one's daily life, which can be quite a bit more complicated than life here, it's much more difficult to remember. It's much more difficult to be at ease, to drop back into our own experience, to recollect, to come back in touch with ourselves. But it's not impossible. We say often that the foundation of that remembering, of really bringing the practice to life, to being mindful, whatever our activity or level of complexity is, the foundation of that is to have a daily sitting practice. And of course, here in this context, it sounds like an absurd thing to say, because you think, oh, well, you know, I should have a 15-hour-a-day sitting practice or something like that. But actually, there's something that happens, I believe, just in the moment of sitting down, which is really crucial to the path of recollection. And that is some kind of 
intention or inclining the mind toward remembering, toward bringing the Dharma to life, toward bringing the practice to life. And so we say sit every day to manifest that connection, to stay in touch with the fact that it's a practice, it's a living spirituality. One of the most difficult things for people in cultivating some kind of daily meditation practice in the world is a kind of confusion, really, about what the essence of the practice is. A lot of the very powerful experiences that happen in the course of intensive meditation actually happen because of the great cultivation of concentration, which is possible in a situation like this. We gather in our energy, the mind gets, gets less entranced, less intoxicated by the hindrances. They may still come, but there's quite a bit less pull because we're centered and we're, we're concentrated. And with that gathering in of our energy, those times when that's strong, and all of that energy becomes available to us once again, there can be tremendously powerful experiences that happen of all different kinds. But concentration in and of itself tends to be a fairly fragile factor of mind. It will go up and down quite a lot depending on different circumstances. So I use this example in talking to somebody recently. Even here, as conditions change, concentration can go up and down quite a lot. So you might be sitting here in the hall and your mind is getting very quiet. There are very few thoughts. You feel your energy all coming together. It's very powerful, extraordinary, really. And then somebody sneezes. And this wave of agitation goes through you. Like, I'm going to get sick. I don't want to get sick. If I get sick, I'm not going to have any energy to practice for the whole rest of the retreat. These days are so precious, and on and on it goes. And the concentration's gone. It's just gone. We say that the heart essence of the practice is really the quality of mindfulness, and especially a sense of satipanya, that equanimity and wisdom that go along with mindfulness, so that nothing is ever lost. The capacity for being aware, for being enriched by our experience, is never lost, no matter what the experience is. We can be mindful of that great serenity and the tranquility and the energy building and all of the power of mind that happens as we're getting concentrated. We can be mindful of hearing that sound, the sneeze. We can be mindful of the aversion that comes up in our minds. We can be mindful of the whole train of thinking and agitation and upset that is coming. And it can be a very wonderful 
deep and profound meditation, even though what we are looking at is quite unpleasant. It's not anybody's image of what would happen if we were sitting in the Himalayas, you know, in a cave and um, for 30 years. We think, oh, well, you know, certainly then I would vanquish all thought and there would be no more agitation and I would be supremely concentrated all the time. But it never seems to happen. Because even if we can control the amount of input from most of our senses, there's still that mind, you know? And so you can go very far away from home to a very, very quiet place where nobody ever sneezes. And still, you can be sitting there very concentrated. And sometimes the concentration itself will trigger an intense memory or something from the past, some kind of emotional arising that's very strong. And if the essence of our practice is mindfulness, we're fine. If we are attached to and dependent upon maintaining that very deep sense of concentration and stillness, we're lost. Because we are not protected by our practice at all. We're continually afraid and we're trying to control circumstances and control the mind in a way that is quite unrealistic. A very common scenario in leaving a retreat, and this may be something you experience in, in the weeks when you're first gone, is that people will go home with a strong resolve to sit every day. And the first few weeks or the first few months, there is still that momentum of concentration that is a wonderful quality and does get very strongly developed in the course of intensive practice sometimes. And so when we sit, there are not huge waves of hindrances. There's a fair amount of clarity. We don't get lost in thought very, very much, and it feels wonderful. And you think, oh, good. You know, now I'm set for the rest of my life. (laughs) And then one day you sit down, and for whatever reason, the concentration, which is a very fragile factor of mind, is not so strong. You forgot to do something the day before. You know, you had a disturbing phone call the night before, or something is cooking inside so that you cannot get to that same place of concentration very easily. So you sit down and you start to feel agitated. Then you feel bored. Then you get angry. Then your knees hurt. Then your back hurts. And then you think, it's not working. It's not working anymore. I can't do this practice on the same days that I have to go to work or have to go to school or whatever. I know what I'll do. This is Tuesday, and I won't sit Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday because it doesn't work. I'll sit all day on Saturday, and I'll sit all of Sunday morning. And that's what I'll do. So you get up immediately from the sitting because it doesn't feel very good. And then you don't sit Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday comes along, and maybe you sit or maybe you don't. But even if you do, 
still the concentration might not be very strong. It still might be waves of hindrances. It might be a lot of thinking, a lot of physical discomfort. So then people commonly will start to think, doesn't work at all for me. It's not the right practice. Or it doesn't work outside of a retreat context. What I'll do is, this is March, and the next time I can go to a retreat will probably be September, so I'll just wait until September. That's a good idea. And then we wait maybe six months or whatever it is, and we go to a retreat, and we start that whole cycle all over again. It's a tremendous cycle of discouragement and despair, and in fact, it's needless discouragement at that, because those cycles, those waves of concentration going up and concentration going down, just like they're natural here, they're still natural outside of here. They're just a part of life, that everything becomes, in effect, connected to or included in our power of awareness. That's actually what the practice is. I went to Manindra quite early in my practice, caught exactly in that cycle of despair. I was living in India, I was doing a lot of retreats, but whenever I wasn't in a retreat and I was trying to sit every day, when it felt good, I would be incredibly exhilarated and thrilled and I would have so much confidence and I would just know that this was absolutely the most important thing in my life. And as soon as I would sit and it felt bad, when my knee pain came back or I was sleepy or I was bored or I was angry or whatever, I would just give up. I would give up completely and I would be incredibly disheartened and discouraged. So I went to Menindra telling him just this, that I couldn't keep up a daily sitting practice even though I was there living in India. And he looked at me and gave me a really wonderful piece of advice that was very simple. He said to me, in terms of your practice, just put your body there. He said, that's what you have to do. You just put your body there on the cushion or on the chair or whatever every single day, and your mind will do whatever it does. You know, some days it will be very orderly and proper, and some days it will be wild and all over the place, but it doesn't matter. Your job is just put your body there. And so I did. And it was a fantastic lesson, because in fact, that was what I needed to do, was just to put my body there, because that was the expression of my heart's commitment. I could not control the nature of the experience. None of us can. We simply have to be there. We have to make that kind of intention or resolve to connect to our experience rather than pull away from it, to open to it no matter what it is, to ride through the seeming ups and downs, to not analyze it to death, and actually simply to do it. 
because that's how it all happens. There's a tremendous happiness in just coming back in touch with ourselves. And often I think that so much of these instructions or so much of the teaching even is so simple that we can feel quite contemptuous of it because of its very simplicity. Like mindfulness of the body, you know, be mindful when you're walking, be mindful when you're bending, when you're stretching, when you're eating, you know, and all of that. And I could see in myself, in my early practice, I could be quite disdainful of all that because it seems so trivial. But in fact, any moment of mindfulness, no matter what the object, is of great profundity. And if we can string together more moments of mindfulness in a row, even though the object is this stupid, ordinary activity, then our practice is going very well. It's actually being lived. There was one year here during the three-month course when I was teaching, actually, and I was doing interviews in one of the rooms upstairs and found that many times throughout the day, I would come downstairs for something, to check something on the bulletin board or in the office or to get some tea or something like that, and then I'd go back upstairs. So one day I decided that that main staircase was going to be my temple. That was my place of practice. And I just resolved that every time I went up or down those stairs, I was actually going to pay attention to what I was feeling. There were times when I could move very slowly. There were times when I couldn't move so very slowly. But that staircase actually became my practice. So it's very simple tools for recollecting, for coming back to ourselves, for breaking the momentum of spinning out that are really very powerful. We learn in an experience like this to make a friend of silence, to be a little simple about things. I can't remember if I said this before in this retreat because I'm at that stage, (laughs) but maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Um, The first year that we invited Menindra here to the States, we were in India visiting and issued the invitation and um, we talked to him about IMS and he said to us, do you have a cow there? And we said, no. (laughs) And he said, well, then how do you get fresh milk? And we went, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. You know, life is a little more complicated here than it is over there or was over there. And sometimes there's a great refuge for us in getting a little bit simpler about things. Not just getting caught in the momentum of doing and having and manifesting and acting, but taking refuge in a quality of simply being and seeing what unfolds from there. It's like learning to trust in a way the power of our awareness, to trust that 
if we can practice in this way that whatever needs to happen can happen. They use this example in Burma sometimes about a hunter that goes into the forest to try to capture a bird. But they say in the end, it actually doesn't matter if they capture the bird or not. Because in all of the wandering that they do through the forest, their accomplishment is that they've learned the way of the forest. So we learn the ways of the body and mind. We learn the ways of life by learning how to be present. It is, after all, our own lives. And we can come to see them in a very, very different way. The great Tibetan yogi Milarepa once said, do not try to attain anything, but practice all your life. Which seems to be about the truth of it. When we try to attain something, we lose sight of our actual experience. We lose sight of the truth of the present moment. But it's also not a process of being lazy or being indolent or being negligent. We really do need to practice all our lives because there is nothing apart or separate from the sense of practice. In effect, we have to discover who we are. We have to discover where we are. We have to discover what our lives are about. And we do that in any single moment of recollection and bringing together as many moments in a row as we possibly can. I had this really funny experience um, when uh, Joseph and I this summer were at the Buddhist Christian Conference and Diana Eck, whom some of you may know, who's a professor uh, in Cambridge at the Center for World Religion, was speaking at this conference. And the, the conference, I think probably either Joseph or I have mentioned, was at Gethsemane Monastery which is where Thomas Merton had been a monk. And Diana got up to give a presentation, and she began with a fairly long and quite mysterious preamble. She said, there's a line in Thomas Merton's writing which could not really possibly have any kind of meaning for any of you in this room but in fact, it's proved to be one of the guiding forces of awakening in my own life. And that was confusing because it was hard to imagine what might. And she went on to say, the line in Thomas Merton's writing that I'm referring to is, and where is Diana Eck now? And what she said was that when she was a student at Smith College, one of her professors had sent Thomas Merton something she had written. And Thomas Merton had written back to the professor 
a letter which included the line, and where is Diana Eck now? And that letter made it into one of his journals. And she said she used that question over and over again, (laughs) and that it actually had transformed her mind in many ways. So I thought, what a wonderful question. (laughs) Where am I now? (laughs) What's going on now? (laughs) What is happening right now? We just come back to ourselves. We recollect who we are. It can be that simple and that powerful. And it's wonderful not to, to have a concept of what should be happening, because then our practice can be everywhere. It can be everything. And we can actually live in a state of trust. I mentioned earlier in this retreat, I'm sure, that (laughs) when I first went to India, I was a, a college student at the University of Buffalo. And I had studied Buddhism a little bit in college. I thought I knew something. Well, just before I left Buffalo, just like even a day or two before, these friends and I were going off to India to try to learn how to meditate. Trungpa Rinpoche came to Buffalo on his first tour of the United States. So I went with a group of my friends, some of whom were going to go with me to India in order to hear him speak. At the end of the talk, Trungpa Rinpoche asked for questions, and the way the questions were done was that they were written down and then presented to him in this whole big pile on the table in front of him. And a friend of mine, one of the people I was with that I was also going to go to India with, wrote out the question, I'm going to leave for Asia in just a few days and I want to learn how to practice Buddhist meditation. Where can I go? So this happened to be one of the questions that Trungpa pulled out of the pile of pieces of paper sitting in front of him. And he read it out loud, then was silent for a few moments, then replied by saying, I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. And that was it. I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. No addresses, no recommendations, no directions to different monasteries to go to, to learn how to practice. We just went. And it was something like three or four months later that I found myself at my very first Vipassana retreat. Somehow, there was the pretense of accident unfolding. And it's not that I had to do nothing. I had to leave home. I needed a certain sincerity and conviction. I needed a strong commitment and a willingness to learn and a tremendous sense of discovery. But with all that, there was then some kind of unfolding. When I 
uh, spoke at our 20th anniversary party in August. Some of you were probably there. I was recounting how when I was in Buffalo going to school, I uh, joined a program, one of the programs at the college, where you could, in effect, spend your junior year abroad and go study in some other culture. And then the idea was that you would come back for your senior year and do a kind of cross-cultural study. And it being Buffalo, what happened was that many people went off and actually never came back. <laughs> but anyway, um, when I first applied to that particular program, I submitted a proposal in which I asked to be sent to New Zealand, and that got turned down. And then I had known some people from the school uh, who were going to India, I knew that, and I really did have a strong desire to learn how to meditate, so I thought, well, maybe I'll just submit a new proposal and ask to go to India and learn, learn Buddhism, and that got accepted. And then I told the story about how Joseph, as he perhaps mentioned, got um, his first taste of the Buddhist teaching when he was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. And when he applied to go to the Peace Corps, he actually asked to be sent to East Africa, and that got refused. They mysteriously sent him to Thailand instead. So I was sitting up there, um, on this stage, just talking about the pretense of accident. Like, who knows where we would be now if I'd gone to New Zealand, Joseph had gone to Africa, and all of you had, you know, gone somewhere else this fall. <laughs> it's this tremendously strange and mysterious process that is almost like it's almost like the wave of parami, of moral force, that brought the Buddha, brought the Bodhisattva to that tree all those years ago. It's that same intentionality, it's that same inclination of the mind, to whatever degree, whatever small degree. It's that same commitment that we manifest in our moment-to-moment -moment awareness, not knowing what the experience will be, not being able to determine the course of the unfolding, needing to follow the pretense of accident. It's very similar in some way. It's like an echo of the conviction and the intentionality and the sense of purpose that had the bodhisattva keep sitting there under that tree as he was attacked by the legendary force of Mara with all of those temptations and all of those fears and, and the force of self-doubt right at the end when Mara in effect said to the Bodhisattva, by what right are you even sitting here with such a powerful aspiration, with such a a very strong intention. And in response to that challenge of Mara, 
the Bodhisattva did reach his hand over his knee in that very famous uh, depiction and touch the earth, asking for the earth itself to bear witness to all of those lifetimes in which he had practiced generosity and morality and loving kindness and equanimity and so on. And it was that ground, that same wave that had brought him there to that moment, it was that same wave that had the earth respond so that the earth shook in response, actually did bear witness. <clears throat> Mara was vanquished, and disappeared, and the Bodhisattva sat through the night, became enlightened at the first star at dawn. It's the same conviction, that, that quality of the rightness of being here or being there, no matter what one's experience is, that's what keeps us going. You might call it faith, or you might call it intention, or you might call it one's homing instinct for freedom. It's like an urge toward the truth. And that, in effect, is our work. That's our job, is to cultivate that and to nurture that and to, to bring that forth in the whole huge variety of circumstances that will present themselves along the way. What actually presents itself along the way is completely outside of our control. And that's why it's said in the teachings that a very powerful determining point in the practice is this place where we understand what is the path and what is not the path. It's a very crucial kind of resolution in our hearts that we see that the accumulation of pleasure is not the path because we can't hold on to it anyway. The accumulation of fantastic experiences of concentration is not the path because we can't hold on to them either. They're not really a refuge. They're not really a point of safety. That acting in a way that harms ourselves or hurts others is not the path because look what it does to the nature of our experience of the mind. Look at how much distress comes in the recollection or the projection of, of that kind of action. So we understand in the whole range of our life experience, what is the path and what is not the path. And to have the sense of path seems to be the most important thing of all because then everything becomes a part of our path. We actually use all of those different experiences in the light of greater awareness and greater compassion. When we walk upon a path, it's not always easy by any means. 
but it can always feel right. It can always feel correct if our relationship to what's going on is truthful, is one of mindfulness and its clarity and its real connection. And as you know, the Eightfold Path of the Buddha is known as the Middle Way. And it's called the Middle Way because of different sets of extremes that it avoids. The two most well-known extremes are, on the one hand, the extreme of overindulgence of the senses, really getting attached and lost in this glittering world of sense pleasure, looking for a permanent, everlasting sense of fulfillment in something out there or in an object, let's put it that way, because we can objectify anything. We can objectify a person. We can objectify a mind state and relate to it as something that we can hold on to and have and be made better by owning in some way or possessing. That's one extreme kind of life, which leaves us very forsaken and unhappy as things inevitably do change. And then the other extreme is the extreme of excessive self-mortification or over, over asceticism. In the time of the Buddha, in many philosophical systems of the day, when people were doing things like um, you know, the, the bovine ascetics and the canine ascetics who would spend their whole lives imitating cows and dogs. And, um, you know, there were tremendous practices of really mortifying the body and hurting the body, feeling that uh, if you did that strongly enough, then somehow your spirit would soar free and you would be liberated. And that also was an extreme that the Buddha was avoiding, talking instead about a path that is a path of awareness and compassion that doesn't leave us in that position of so frantically trying to hold on to pleasure only to be continually disappointed on the one hand and doesn't leave us hating ourselves and trying to mortify ourselves into liberation, on the other hand. Sometimes it's a little bit funny when we hear that the path is the middle path or it's a balance between self-indulgence and self-mortification. I've I've even had people ask me, almost as though it were a calculation, like if I take a certain amount of self-indulgence and I balance it with an equal amount of self-mortification, then do I have the middle way? You know, have I, has some of gotten to the middle? 
But it's not like that, of course. You know, it's not taking a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B and putting it together and getting, uh, getting the path. It's really this complete level jump. It's a whole radical revisioning of who we are and where our happiness is, and where our freedom lies, that doesn't lend itself to easy categorization. It depends on what we can know and what we can see and how much we can be compassionate in any given moment. And we say, as I know has been said before uh, in this course, (laughs) that the Dharma is timeless because the practice of coming to the truth and being supported by the truth is not something that happens in time, in linear time. It's not a question of acquisition. It's not like learning the answer to a question so that then you know where you once did not know It's not about figuring something out and then resting confident in having figured it out. It's a process that's complete in every step of the process. It exists in its entirety when we are aware, when we're mindful, when we're compassionate, when we're wise, no matter what the object is. And that's why it's said that The Dharma is good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good at the end. Because every moment of being mindful is perfect. It's not that somebody else has better mindfulness, believe it or not. And it's not that perhaps in October, those of you who've been here the whole time, you know, in October you had this sterling, lustrous mindfulness, which has now gotten dimmed and uh, not as good as it was then. Every moment of mindfulness is perfect. The question is, how many moments of mindfulness are there in a row? Or even in a day? That really is the question. It's not making yours better and it's not making yours as good as it used to be and it's not making yours as good as you imagine someone else's is it means doing it it means actually putting it into practice it means bringing it to life as much and as often and as truly and as practically as you possibly can whether the object is extremely simple or not, whether your life is very busy or not, whether you're concentrated or not. Put it into practice. It's a degree of, of openness and complete connection, as though our experience were happening for the first time and as though it were happening for the last time. It's a tremendous sense of, of fullness and wonderment and a lack of complacency. It's so easy in the course of a retreat, which goes on so long, to get more complacent. We can say, well, 
I'll be mindful in the afternoon, you know, when I'm a little more rested, or I'll come back next year, and it'll be better next year. But here's a breath right now, or here's a moment of exhaustion, or here's a moment of restlessness. Can we be mindful of it right now? The function of who we are, or the the power of who we are, is actually quite enormous. And that is the, the natural manifestation through being present. We talk about wisdom, we talk about faith, we talk about rapture, we talk about all of those other qualities. They're all a function of our being present. It gets simpler and simpler, even in the midst of a very complicated life. It's like coming awake and finding a refuge, finding a refuge right in this moment with nothing to be lost and nothing remote or far away or disconnected from ourselves to be gained. We can see that with mindfulness. We can see it with qualities like compassion. We can see it in the the flow of what Trungpa Rinpoche called the pretense of accident. That what we need to do is maintain and sustain that intention to be present. What the Dharma will do is really all the rest. And that's quite a difference. I think of it sometimes in a quality like compassion as well. We establish and we express our dedication to compassion by bringing awareness to the truth of the moment, whatever it is, in the light of that intention. And the Dharma will take care of the rest. This is what we need to do. We can look at the most compassionate person we can imagine or know. And it's an interesting question that one can think about. Is one's own compassion really different than that person who has influenced us or inspired us or is so important for us? Or is it that ours might be rather intermittent or contained in certain limited situations, whereas theirs is rather more extensive in how many times and how many moments they are expressing that. In a way, it's seeing that we don't have to be somebody that we are not, and that we don't have to struggle, and that we don't have to 
consider a purity or a depth of mindfulness or compassion as an extremely remote goal. We have to stop forgetting so much. We have to remember a lot more. We have to bring it to life a lot more in a lot of different situations. And if we envision our path like that, then we understand that it's all right here within us. It's like all of those wonderful qualities are dormant. And we can awaken them. We can really live them when we have that tremendous a commitment. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.